I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all of the fathers in the room. Thank you. Well, I'm going to try to do something a little uncommon in the Episcopal Church this summer, and that is teach a sermon series. And I think the electionary allows me to do that because it takes us through a lot of the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome in the early days. And there's so much rich material on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so today we're going to uh, start this series and talk about the peace of a disciple, the peace of a disciple of Jesus. I want to start with a claim, and that is this. We were made for peace. It is hardwired into us to kind of need an inner equilibrium, a certain sense of satisfaction and completeness, of peacefulness. How many of you, I think some of you are probably old enough to remember Woodstock. Yeah? Maybe you were there. Maybe some of you were there. Don't, don't lie. Or you wanted to go and your parents wouldn't let you. You couldn't find a way to get there. So Woodstock, of course, was this... You know, huge music festival in 1969, the year of love, uh, in the Catskill Mountains in New York. Almost half of a million people showed up, and uh, all the big names were there. Uh, Carlos Santana, Jimi Hendrix, Grateful Dead, all the greats of rock and roll. And uh, does anyone remember the poster, the advertisement, the big bright orange poster with the, with the purple hand? And the, oh, wait a minute. There it is. You see, you probably can't see what it says on there, but it says, Three days of peace and music. Three days of peace. Now, of course, in the Woodstock uh, sense of the term, peace meant something like getting along, uh, often uh, helped by the use of alcohol and psychedelic drugs, let's be honest. Um, And it also, of course, had to do with the movement against the Vietnam War and nuclear disarmament and things like that. But I want to suggest that we think of peace as something deeper than that that there's a peace that is deeper than that. It's an abiding sense of wholeness, of completeness. And this is a universal longing. Just think about it. Look out in the world and look at how you see people um, trying to find peace in their lives. And one of the ways is by pursuing uh, different forms of pleasure. So we look for peace in new houses, new cars, new friends, new foods, new to-do lists, new experiences. Yet, real, lasting peace seems to evade us. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. Most people, if they really learn how to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or first take up some subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. Psychologists have a term for this. They call it the pleasure treadmill. And that's because you keep running after things that you think will bring ultimate peace, new experiences, new food, new friends, new homes, new things. And you end up weary, and you find yourself in the same place, Lacking true peace. Now, there's an alternative uh, to finding peace, and that's to simply despair. That's to despair that can uh, 
to despair that there can be no peace found in this life. Listen to the protagonist in Wallace Stevens' poem, Sunday Morning. She says, but in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Stevens continues, death is the mother of beauty. Hence, from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires. Despair. Only in death will we find peace when we cease to exist, says the poet. So I want to ask, are these the only two options when we think about peace? Running after pleasure or despairing that we can ever find peace? I want to suggest another option. I want to suggest that underlying our need for completeness, for ultimate satisfaction, for peace, is a need for peace with God. It's a need for peace with God. Think about it like this. God created you, knit you together in your mother's womb, has known you since he brought you into existence, and thus he's the source of your life. So it would make perfect sense that there would be something inside you that longed deeply to connect to the source of your life. And there's a way to do that. There's a way to do that. And I want to discuss that today and how it happens and what it means specifically for a follower of Jesus to find this peace. Now we're going to be going through the passage in Romans, so if you want to follow along in your bulletin, that will probably be helpful. Um, the, the reading comes from Romans chapter 5, and so I have to first give you a little bit of background of the first four chapters of Romans to really be able to fully understand what's going on in chapter 5. So here's, here's, here's more or less what happened. Um, the historical situation is that in the early church in the year 49 in Rome, the emperor was frustrated with the Jews, and he kicked the Jews out of Rome. And so you had Jewish followers of Jesus And non-Jewish followers of Jesus, they got separated for about five years until the emperor Claudius died. And when the Jewish Christians came back, were allowed back in, they had to be incorporated back into the life of a non-Jewish Christian church, a Gentile church. And so that created some difficulties and there was some bickering. There was some arguing and misunderstanding about who was doing a better job at following God and who was better at obeying God's law and so forth. And so Paul is addressing this issue in the first four chapters of Romans. And this is what he says to them. I want to read to you from Romans chapter 3, a couple chapters before our passage today. And this is what he says. Pretty stinging words. All, both Jews and Greeks, that is non-Jewish Christians, all are under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who has understanding. There is no one who seeks after God. Sounds a bit gloomy, but this is what Paul is saying. Have you all forgotten that it is only through Jesus' death that you have all been made right before God? You were all equally helpless, unable to merit God's favor, but he accepted you because of what Jesus did, right? He's calling them to remember that they are on equal ground because it is only because of the mercy of Jesus that they are what they are. Now that kind of brings us up to where we are today. And if you want to follow along with me, we're just going to start in this first verse and work through this work through uh, these eight verses together today. Paul starts like this. He says, "Since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." So, what does it mean to be justified? 
there's all kinds of things that could be said about that word. And as I was studying this, I found a definition from someone who's a lot smarter than me and a lot more eloquent than me. So I'm just going to read you his definition, okay? He says this, Justification is reconciliation with God in the present, together with certain hope of salvation in the future, based on the death of Christ in the past, and all known through the gift of the Spirit. That's rather nice, isn't it? And Paul says that the outcome of this, of being justified before God, is peace with God. Peace with God. Now, unless we, lest we think of Woodstock, when we think of the word peace, we should probably talk a little bit about what Paul means by the word peace. Paul is drawing from the Jewish word peace, which was shalom, uh, which was a word in the Old Testament that connoted a state of restoration, of abundance, of well-being, of completeness. One writer puts it really nicely, says, Shalom is a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, and I love this, is the way things ought to be. Shalom is the way things ought to be. So here's what Paul is saying. If you are a disciple of Jesus, you've entrusted your life to him. Your relationship with God has a completeness to it. Things are the way they ought to be. Wow. That means you can't add anything to it now. So stop bickering about who's doing a better job. You can't add anything to your justification before God. It's a sealed deal. You and God are on good terms now and all for the same reason. Because Jesus died for you. Now, Paul goes, uh, Paul goes on if you want to follow along. Through whom, he's speaking of Jesus, we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Now, we need to talk about this, these two words, obtained access. In the Greek, it's just one word, and it is a, a word that was used in the ancient world to describe someone who was approaching the king who was approaching a king. So this was, would be a person of nobility or honor. Okay, And in the Jewish world, the word took on the meaning of approaching the altar of God to make sacrifice, which only could be done by a priest who was morally and ritually pure. Right? So here's what Paul is saying when he says, you've obtained access through Jesus. He's painting a picture of us that says, you who are in Jesus regardless of how much honor or shame you bear, have access to the royal courts of the king. Unbridled access to God's presence. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's what it means to be in Christ. And then he says we have the hope of sharing the glory of God. And what he means by that is that if God has now, in the present, reconciled you to himself and called you a part of his family... You can be sure that in the future, on that day when he comes to judge the living and the dead, you can be assured that you will remain with him and in him because he has done a complete work by justifying you now. Now, this is not just a pie-in-the-sky future promise, okay? Because it actually affects the here and now. Having peace with God affects the here and now. How is that? Let's move on in our passage and see what Paul has to say. He says, not only that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. 
boast in suffering? Did we read that right? Paul, did you lack sleep last night? Boast in suffering? Who says that? Who boasts in suffering? But you see, he doesn't mean jumping up and down for joy when we get in a car accident or lose a family member or go through something very difficult. He doesn't mean celebrating it and making it joyful. What he's saying is that disciples of Jesus boast in their suffering because they're so anchored in God's faithfulness, even when we want to scream at God. We're so assured of the redemptive future that God promises. We're so assured of his presence with us through suffering that when we suffer, we actually find that it starts to produce perseverance in us, character, hope, amazing. Having peace with God totally and utterly transforms how we view suffering in this life. There's another way that having peace with God affects us. And that's this. It affects our relationships with others. It affects our relationship with everyone. Here's how. When you and God were estranged, God was the first to extend a hand of friendship. Even though you were in the wrong And out of that relationship came complete peace. Now, this next thing that I'm going to say is going to be hard for you, especially if you have bitterness towards anyone in your life right now, or if you have any broken relationships in your life, but it's very important that I say it. Because if you recognize that you've been on the receiving end of a mercy that you didn't deserve or merit on your own, you'll be changed. Here's how you'll be changed. The one who extended that mercy to you dwells in you and is able to give you the strength to seek peace even in the most difficult and broken of relationships. Isn't it amazing how the gospel affects not just our relationship with God like this, it it affects our relationships with each other, with everyone. And this becomes a theme in Paul's letter to the Romans when he's speaking to the church later in the letter. He says, do everything that you are able to be at peace with everyone. That means even being the first to step forward and extend your hand and say sorry, even when the other person, maybe especially when the other person is in the wrong. Think about what might happen to all of the broken relationships that we see in our society if the power of the gospel was more spread and more revealed in people's lives as this powerful force that gives strength to heal the most broken of relationships. Think about how that might change such a torn and broken society that we live in. Now, the next part of the passage is very, very big. It's very, very important. It might be the most important part of the passage. It's as if Paul was, it's as if Paul thinks this. I've been saying all this great stuff about what having peace with God through Jesus means, but I'm worried that they're going to forget why we have all this. I'm worried that they're going to forget why. And so he continues. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Indeed, rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might actually dare to die. But God proves his love for us and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. You see, behind the need for inner peace is a need to be perfectly loved by someone who is perfectly 
faithful in a way that no earthly lover could ever be. Paul knew this, and he knew that God was the only one who has proved to be that perfect, faithful lover. God proved his love for us, and that while we still were sinners, Christ died for us. If you take one thing away from reading the New Testament or the entire Bible, it should be those words. It's a summary of it all. In a few minutes when we begin our Eucharistic uh, liturgy, I hope you'll follow along in the prayer book because the words are powerful. Um, But the, the prayer that we do today, Eucharistic prayer A, begins with these words. Holy and gracious Father, in your infinite love, you have made us for yourself. You have made us for yourself. A lot of us hear those words every week, don't we? But it's easy for that reason that we hear them so often to miss the depth of meaning therein. Those words are reminiscent of something St. Augustine once said. It's a very well-known quote. And he said this, You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's a beautiful prayer. You see, if you don't have peace with God, you'll find yourself in a continual state of restlessness. You'll get stuck on the pleasure treadmill. You'll find yourself distracted by other things or you'll despair of ever finding real peace. But there's this other option. There's this other option that actually meets the deepest longings of the human soul and begins to transform lives from the inside out. Maybe you need to know that peace for the first time. Maybe you had it once, but you've been distracted by other things. Let me remind you of these words of Jesus. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have made a way for us to obtain access into your royal courts, to have access to your presence. Lord, that reveals so much about who you are to us. You're the God who invites us in and longs to embrace us and has made a way for that to happen. So we ask that you would speak words to each and every one of us in this room today as we prepare our hearts to come forward and to receive you in the most intimate way in the body and blood of your Son. And we ask that as we do that, you would renew us, that you would give us a deep sense that we all need of having that peace with you. And as we go out into the world, having experienced that, show us where you want to see that transform our relationships with others. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.